Welcome to another episode of Chris Reed's Book. Welcome back. Hello, hello, one and all. So, I apparently have my normal podcast mic working again. I might be adjusting the levels a little bit as we go, but not only is it working, it's working better than it ever has. So hopefully this is the uh, best podcast we've recorded yet. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? I agree. In the meantime, um... While I'm bringing up the chapter I'm going to read today, let me just say that uh, thanks to some of the time I've had over the last week and weekend, I'm actually ahead in my editing now. I've finally overrun what I'm reading, just like I wanted to do, which means that everything you're going to be hearing tonight has been pre-edited for your enjoyment. And uh, what that truly means is that uh, I won't have to stay up so late on recording nights. Awesome, because I don't have to pre-edit on the recording nights and then record and then upload and so on and so forth. Not that I really minded. I love doing these things. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing them for nothing. But I want to put these podcasts out there. I, If nothing else, I also listen to my own podcasts just to see how they go. That's why I know that I need to re-record a chapter or two uh, from, I think, two episodes ago where I somehow got a uh, robot uh, effect in the voice uh, tweak that I did, and it, it, it made it inaudible. So I apologize for that again. I will get that corrected soon and put it up. And uh, if you're listening to this and you don't remember an episode where that was the case, then I must have already fixed it. Yay! Hi, future people! Uh, in the meantime, speaking of the fact that there are previous chapters, if this is your first episode of Chris Reed's book. Let me just say, this is me, Chris Pullman, reading my first novel, Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars. It is a chapter podcast, basically. So that means every episode, well, a serial podcast, every episode builds on the previous one because I am reading the chapters out of my book in order. It might not seem like that at times, but it is. These are all in the order that I put them in my book. So if you haven't listened to any of the other podcasts, uh, any of the other episodes from this podcast, I highly encourage you to do so. You can do that through iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Just look up Chris Reed's book or Chris Pullman. Either way, you'll find me. You may also now find, if you search for Chris Pullman, you may also now find Whiskey and Mash. Uh, My mother-in-law and I have started a new podcast. It is based around the Mash TV show. This last Monday we did, uh, well, that'd be two days ago. It is May 20th, 2015. Hello, future people, once again. But this last Monday, we did our first episode of that, and we reviewed the first two episodes of the series MASH. Uh, The first one is a pilot, and the second one was to market to market. We're going to refine that as we go, but it was a good start. We compared... Those two episodes, we talked about them a little bit, and we compared them to MASH, the movie. If you have Netflix, and if you seem interested in MASH, uh, go out there and look at it. The whole series is out there on Netflix. But anyway, back to this podcast. 
Uh, if you want to listen to previous episodes of this podcast, like I say, you can go out to your favorite podcast app or you can go right over to the website, narclaninc.com. That's N-A-R-C-L-A-N-I-N-C.com. It is not a clan. It is not an incorporated entity. That's just the uh, website name that I thought was cool at the time. If this sort of thing really takes off for me, I might make this into like a limited liability corporation, but it wouldn't be incorporated at that point. It would be LLC. Anyway, off topic. (laughs) Over there, there will be a link to Chris Reed's book to Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars, and you can grab all the raw MP3 files right off of the website. Also over on the website, you can find links off to my social media. I have an author page on Facebook. I have an author account on Twitter. You can catch me there. Keep up to date with all the podcast episodes I am putting out. In the meantime, uh, today what we are going to do is record four chapters. Chapter 29, Ignorance Lost. Chapter 30, Endgame Discovery. Chapter 31, Precursors, and Chapter 32, Endgame Acceptance. And just looking ahead, uh, in editing my book, I'm editing it in uh, Word. I'm on Ignorance Lost starts on page 174 of 381 currently. And that means that we are roughly 100 pages out from the end of the official book. I have a lot of appendix material in this book because it helps build out the universe because this is my first book and I say first because there are others. I already have a sequel written and a lot of the appendix material forms the basis for that second book. But we are, there's a total of 44 chapters in this book and we are going to start on 29 tonight. So we're approaching the end pretty rapidly. Which is okay, that just means that I have more work to do. Which is fine. You know, then Chris Reed's book will continue on with uh, book two in the series. Uh, Chaos is Zenith. That's the working title. But anyway, um, if I need to take some water breaks tonight, I hope that you will forgive me ahead of time. I, I just came from my gym. If you're ever around the Kakana area, Appleton, Wisconsin, uh, Ghost Town Fitness, I, uh, was down there and my trainer Dustin Atwood kind of worked me hard tonight even though it was just an assessment I still pushed myself you know because you got to do that to the gym you really have to Dustin's a great guy if you're around here looking for a trainer go over and see Dustin he does wonderful work anyway podcast starting out chapter 29 ignorance lost so Adam Green was chaos I asked Eric hesitated before answering. That is something I've been trying to put right in my mind for some time, James. The body remained the same, but the mind that was my friend Adam, it changed. What was that like, finding yourself enemies with one of your best friends, I asked. (sighs) Eric exhaled loudly as he said, it was very hard. The trust James, Adam, and I had in each other, we would have, and did on occasion, put our lives in each other's hands. I could see Eric falling into reverie, something I I was just coming to understand as dangerous. At the same time, reflecting back on it, this bout of reverie was different. It was controlled somehow. We could, 
from the inflection Sheridan, just a few short words, understand the entirety of a conversation. The most subtle movements between us shared profound meaning. We were brothers, and to suddenly have one brother turn on you. Eric shook his head, his gaze turned downward as it peered through the floor into his past. I never had brothers, I commented. Eric looked up over his glasses, sadly. Neither did I, other than them. When James and I realized what had happened, we tried to reach out to our old friend, but he was already gone. Eric's gaze drifted out his bay window. It was all of our faults. We together created the technology that changed him. Even so, even today, I, I feel most responsible. I brought him onto the project, after all. Typical survivor's guilt. He cracked a sad smile. What exactly changed him, I asked. A lot of things, Eric replied. First of all, sending him into the situation we did. Adam, as always, was severely affected by his surroundings. The very real suffering of the people he worked with was trying to manipulate, started the process. He saw how much their government was taking advantage of them. Any small advance Adam helped them make, even simple upgrades to their water systems, were ravaged, taken, or destroyed by Las Fuerzas Independientes del Presidente. At the same time, the soldiers took from the people whatever they wanted, and in not a single village were there enough arms, enough strong men and women to oppose them. Seeing that literally firsthand and and having to let it happen time and again in favor of some supposed future good, it, it gets to be too much. Every time he saw it happen, Adam knew he could kill every single soldier he saw. He would have come out unscathed, and the soldiers would have been gone. After a while, the villagers began to see this, too. They began to take issue with Adam's passivity and weren't afraid to let him know it. That didn't help the situation. It pulled at his heart, his sense of decency. His reports back to us increasingly ended with pleas for action. So then what happened? I asked. If he'd continued to follow the TDF's orders, I assumed that he never would have been discovered, never would have brought the scorn of the government on to the op. Quite true. He jumped the gun. Having gathered intel, telling him where El Presidente's forces were going to next annex land, he, he refocused his energies in front of the flood rather than behind it. He sent his people out to make inroads with the cities and villages in the soldiers' path. He trained them, he armed them, massed them, and led them against the soldiers. Hesitantly, I asked, did he win? A squad of nanitics interspersed amongst anti-rebels? Yes, he won over and over again, every time being more bold about it. At first they all used conventional weapons so as to create the illusion that it was really native citizens standing up for themselves. What happened? I pressed. At first it was the soldiers. They were coming in in greater numbers. So he began using more of the tools at his disposal, and that is, he began having his people, his nanitics, 
use their powers, their abilities. Since they were still using conventional weaponry at that point, though, it was still seen as a native rebellion. The only response El Presidente knew was more force, so he sent in heavy weapons squads. They were still defeated, of course. Armored troops and transports were brought in. Adam upped the ante again. He had his people start using their full powers in battle, plasma weapons and all. So the farce was broken, I stated. <laughs> Indeed. And El Presidente was all too happy once he had footage of it to show the world how government forces are interfering in sovereign matters, stopping the national will of the people. Everyone knew such a claim was a farce itself, but the government's hand was forced. And as we were the only ones capable of bringing Adam in, we had to. We, we were forced to do so, Eric said. That, then, was enough to send Adam over the edge? I asked after a moment. Deeper than just that. Every new power altered him, altered his reality ever so slightly, picking up more bits and pieces of mind-reading abilities from the Ninetics he worked with, both augmented and warped how he saw people. He could get imperfect senses of their thoughts and motives. It created monsters of everyone around him. We all, after all, have our demons, Eric replied. You're saying mind-reading? sent him over the edge, I asked. No, no, no. Just just that it was a large part, Eric said, leaning forward. You can't stick a pin into just one aspect of chaos and expect it to be the answer, but, but his brand of imperfect mind-reading did twist him. But others were mind-readers, as you've mentioned, uh, like Melinda. Couldn't they have, I don't know help train him better and more accurately use what he had? I inquired. Generally, yes, but Adam's abilities ranged so widely and were generally so shallow that he normally didn't have conscious control over them. They, the, the ones like mind reading, were just always on, running in the background in his head, and the variety of similar powers he absorbed had a chaotic effect as well. <laughs> Nope, no pun intended. I was a bit confused at that. What do you mean, the variety of similar powers? Isn't mind-reading, you know, mind-reading? Well, Eric said, let me put it to you this way. Is there just one shade of blue? Well, there are gradations, subtle differences. I guess in powers, too, I realized. Bingo. Ranging from acuteness to magnitude, applicable distance to duration. Melinda was the best mind reader ever. Adam had his first taste of it from her. But there were others. Some were perfect empaths, able to sense and convey any emotion. If you train such a person right, their ability to read emotion responses is as good as a transcript of a person's thoughts. Then there were shape readers, those who literally saw thoughts as shapes, places, things. Likewise with them, train them properly and they can tell you exactly what a person's thinking. Lesser readers saw thoughts as colors and sounds and music and so on. I knew one woman who only saw great works of art. 
all useful, but two degrees. I should think you'd see how getting the image of the Colossus leaves a lot of room for interpretation. I gave the thought an affirmative shrug. So what was it like for Adam? Do you know? I asked. Remember, they're all up here, Eric replied, tapping his head. It was generally a combination of them all. So then, you tell me how you think you'd react if you were constantly subjected to something like words in the shape of the Louvre, which appeared sad and yellow and gazed longingly at a classic triptych of Jesus crucified on the 1812 overture. I suppose it might do a number on my sanity, I admitted. Couple that with powers such as the variety of computing abilities he ended up absorbing, that constantly kept both his conscious and unconscious mind chewing on information, trying to make logical sense of it all, along with various form of DeAndre's ability to tap into the collective unconsciousness and Meng's prescience, and you end up with a pretty unstable mind seeking an outlet for its madness. One, the situation around him helped provide, I mentioned. Bang on. It gave him the chance to reinvent himself, except that in allowing his mind to do so, he opened a can of worms. You see, something Adam had done at some point in his life was to mentally create different versions of himself. One was shy and introverted. Another was impassive and stoic. Yet another was logical above all else, though compassionate and calming. And finally, there was one in which he embodied all his darkness. In allowing his mind to remold itself to the situation in which he found himself, he gave each of those mental selves the chance to grow. And his darkness, its ambitions outpacing those of the others, won out and overtook him. Furrowing my brow, I asked, How do you mean, overtook him? How do I explain it? Eric asked aloud. At times, he began stroking his chin, he would sort of switch mental selves. In times of great emotional stress, he would allow his stoic or logical self to take over. His outward attitude would change to match. When he was angry, the Dark One found his way to the fore as none of the others wanted to deal with the situation. And Adam was angered by his situation, I added. And so the Dark One naturally came to the fore. But unlike earlier in Adam's life, now the Dark One had some very powerful toys to play with, Eric commented. The situation in Columbia fed into Adam's state of mind, which fed into he, or rather his dark self, used his absorbed powers, I added. Adam's mission was the track that provided a way for the Dark One to railroad him into being chaos. The process would get faster the more his mind crowded with alternate powers, more information and more possibilities, and the only outlet was forward toward one goal, one end result, toward which the dark side of him drove the train. Eric had been right. No pin could be stuck in the entire problem. Stick it here, this way, and it missed layers. Pierce multiple layers, and you could still miss the heart of the matter. 
Only by looking at Adam's situation both as a whole and as separate parts could you come to understand it completely. I felt the tugging on my head in consciousness. Flicking my gaze out of introspective reverie, I could have sworn I saw Eric's pupils dilate. Blinking, though, they, they appeared normal. You think you understand? Eric asked. The tugging grew more intense. I retraced my thoughts, checking my conclusions as I went. Suddenly, I felt as though I was daydreaming. In, in my mind's eye, it was a silent explosion. I, I found myself caught up by a large rock, almost planetoid in nature. Everything around me continued moving outward, expanding. At the same time, it seemed as though the chaotic debris began to organize itself. Small dots of light began to appear as I saw gas swirling inward toward an odd-looking ball. I, I closed my eyes and shook my head to clear it. It had only taken a second for the daydream-like vision to occur. When I again opened my eyes, Eric said, So why don't you write it down? I need a refill anyway. Chapter 30 Endgame Discovery Meng, I've been contemplating something, James said as he sat meditating with Meng on the training room's matted floor. It was a practice he had begun shortly after they figured out how to fine-tune and enhance their powers through the new process of nanetic bonding. He had started to see possible futures, though not like Meng. James could project whole worlds based on information and data, but always a perfectionist, he began meditating with Meng as a way to refine such projections and sift through them to the train stations, as Meng put it. Yes, James? Meng said calmly, his eyes still closed. How different is reality for the two of us than possibility? James asked. What do you truly mean? Meng replied. While we can both see the smallest minutiae of the present as it happens, how difficult would it be then to reach into that and subtly alter conditions, to change possibility into reality? James elucidated. Meng's eyes slowly opened. That was a tract he hadn't expected from James. You're talking about altering reality at a basic level. That is exactly what I'm talking about, James affirmed. That's very dangerous, James. We can't predict what even a single such alteration would do to the future. My prescience requires a certain amount of personal distance, Meng responded. Are you positive about that? James asked. Meng felt uncomfortable with this line of inquiry, but also felt that it could be important somehow. After all, if he hadn't seen it, there was no way Adam would have either. I've been running it through my mind for some time now. You're in a lake, and throw a rock. Facing only the direction where you throw the rock, you see the ripples of it as it approach you. As they pass you, though, you can only guess what effect they have on the shore. Unless there's someone facing the shore opposite you, then he can tell you what's happening, James explained. You're suggesting that working together we could affect the present and still maintain our grip on the future, Meng stated. More than that, I'm the observer, you're the rock thrower. 
You said that space and time are so closely intertwined that a change in one is the change in the other. My mind can instantly calculate change and see its outcome. Yours can affect change, James said, pausing. Meng suddenly grew extremely uncomfortable with what James was suggesting. What you're talking about is me reaching through the veil. The veil, James, and intentionally altering the very fabric of space-time. Yes, James replied. What would possibly make you go down such a path of thought? Meng questioned. Because I've been searching through Chaos's base code lately, that which was forced onto us. In my dreams I found it, the chink in his armor. But there's only one way at it. A vision flashed before Meng's mind, one so transitory he barely believed it. They would die. But the vision had been a train station. It was fixed along the branch of reality they now traveled. He grows stronger, of course, but in one direction. If we can twist that, alter his reality just enough, his own nature will rend him apart. And right now, the way he's growing, James said, allowing Meng to finish the thought. Is darker. It was an odd sensation, though stabilizingly unsettling in magnitude from their current discussion, to finish a thought for someone. Meng normally was the progenitor of thoughts in discussion. You mean to force a white hole open on him? He's trying to grow more stable by controlling the situation with more and more of an iron fist, closing it tighter. We add natural, unpredictable chaos to his reality, and poof, James said. We don't know what effect that would have on the fabric of this planet, Meng replied. You wouldn't as the stone thrower, but I would as the observer, James added, assuredly. We'd have to be right on top of him to make it work, James, to avoid undue instability to space-time. We would take all of us out, Meng said his mind churning over the sure knowledge that they were now to die. I know, James said gravely. Such thoughts hadn't escaped his mind. But it's the only way now. We both can see that every one of his elite he kills only makes him stronger. He'll be unstoppable in the end. Then we're all dead anyway, and the world falls into permanent darkness under his rule. Meng felt his body resisting his attempts at keeping it calm, his legs wanting to move. He shook his head. How could it work? You couldn't describe the changes to me fast enough for me to keep such a tear stable and open. I could, if doing so didn't rely on words, James said cautiously. A new twinge of distaste ran through Meng. You're talking about linking our minds through the nanites, like he did, Meng spat. Taking on a very serious air, James said, You prefer he won out? We'd be dead anyway. Meng's mind raced, seeking a future that didn't include this out as the linchpin. His body ached for movement, fight or flight kicking in. No, no, there must be another way. You know there isn't, James said sadly. It's a no-win scenario for us, James. For you and I, yes. For humanity, though, James said, Look, you may have visions of martyrdom, but that was never part of my plan in all this, Meng said, rising and beginning to pace. How can he sit there so damn calm, Meng thought of James. 
He felt a tightness on his head and stopped dead in his tracks. How could you be so sure it would work, James? He said, stalking toward James as he prepared for a fight. James slowly rose and dropped back into a defensive stance. You can project what the future will hold. You've even gotten good enough at filtering those possibilities down to a handful, but I'm the only one on Earth with the power to know for sure. The only one who can see the train stations. Meng leapt forward after thinking it, James leaping back as if he knew what Meng had thought. The tugging remained. Melinda! Meng bellowed, show yourself! From the locker room, Melinda emerged. You piece of... Meng said, snapping his gaze back onto James, lunging at him. James sidestepped, Meng sailing through clear air. He tucked before he hit the ground, rolling and coming up to a ready stance. He let his instincts take over, no thoughts passing through his mind now. Throwing a kick high and immediately low, he caught James' unguarded ribs. He spun, finding air with a backside crescent kick. As he came down, he crouched and swept with the other foot, knocking James off, his side lunging stance. He rolled and pounced, James rolling left in time to avoid being grappled. Meng hit, rolling up to a fighting stance again. James, Melinda said, beginning to move toward him. No, both he and Meng said. You're acting like childish idiots, she replied. Neither responded. Meng flew at James with a tornado kick, James dodging it but getting caught in the gut by the following spinning back kick from Meng. James doubled over and staggered backwards, forcing his head up toward Meng. With a sharp move, Meng reached James, intent on a kick to his head. James sidestepped, catching Meng's leg and flinging it over his head. Meng fell hard on the mat, instantly rolling backward into a fighting stance. How long do you want to keep this up? James asked forcefully. Neither of us is going to get tired or seriously hurt anytime soon, and your mind was the pattern for our embedded martial arts knowledge. Anything Meng could do, James would know how to counter. His frustration feeding on itself to a boiling point, Meng let out a loud yell and spun toward a punching bag, hitting it quick and hard enough to tear it in two. Why are you helping him? Meng raged as Melinda crossed to James's side. You'll... Meng began, swallowing hard, setting his jaw and finishing. You'll lose him if he does this. Very quietly, emotion showing through in her demeanor, Melinda said, I know. I caught wafts of this two nights ago. Made James explain his theory to me. Her arm was around James's shoulder. His brow furrowed. His eyes sat as he looked at her. Her at Meng. He explained everything to me. And I know, she said, it's the only way. I don't want it to be. James is my life. But this has always been bigger than us, Meng. The minute we became the TDF, it became bigger than us. Any of us would lay our lives on the line for the sake of humanity. It's very different when you knowingly walk into it, Meng said, his face still a mask of anger. It's no different. Melinda retorted. James pulled Melinda's arm from him and began to step toward Meng. Stay right there, I swear, Meng said, letting the threat hang midair. You'll what? James asked, exasperated. He shook his head. Look at you. Look at yourself. Meng, keeping his eyes on James, brought his chin up and rotated his head as his peripheral vision opened first left and then right. You literally fought yourself into a corner. James wasn't lying. 
Meng found himself in the far corner of the practice room. Holding up his hands, palms out, James took a few steps toward Meng, until Meng dropped back into a stronger fighting stance. Okay. Okay. It took me a while to accept. You need time. But just keep in mind that we are approaching the end game now. Chaos doesn't have much left until he'll be unstoppable. James slowly backed away, hands still up. Once he was back by Melinda, they left together. Rang breathed slowly, his face and mind still full of angry denial toward where James had stood. His mind yet searched frantically for any other possible way out. He kept arriving at the same train station. They would die. He yelled, raging again, spinning and backhanding what remained of the punching bag. It snapped off its chain and sailed against the far wall. There was no other out. Meng knew it. And now, because of his Trojan code, Chaos knew it too. By actually saying it, by making the thought a reality for Meng, James had made a possibility into a reality. The reality. And in doing so, he had also proved the concept. It would work. Meng knew now that with James's help, he could reach through time and into space with his mind and force the possibility they needed into reality. But he still wouldn't accept it as the only way out. Chapter 31 Precursors Once Earth fought against the insurrectionists, many old antipathies were forgotten. Yankee and Dixie, Bolshevik and Nixonite, Muslim and Jew all became irrelevant when someone, when everyone's existence became threatened. So too will it be again, Eric said. You keep alluding to the future, Eric. What's going to happen? I asked, breaking another of his reveries. Events beyond your ability to comprehend. Were you a true student of ancient history, James, you would realize the cyclical nature of all historical events, Eric replied. I am a student of history, Eric. Yes, but you still lack some historical knowledge and insight. For instance, prior to every Terran war, there is always a precursor. The American Civil War to World War I, the Spanish Civil War to World War II, the Coalition War to the Global Insurrection. Had the old United States of America, part of the North American region, not sought a technological means of defeating the Coalition juggernaut, I wouldn't be seated before you today, Eric stated. What does your historical background tell you of the significance, the connections, between the Coalition War and the War of Insurrection? I guess, I began, that, realistically, weapons of war probably didn't change much, nor tactics. True. As we would expect, with the noble exception of the TDF elites, such as moi. Our tactics, as you say, did not change. What about the socio-political climate of both events? Eric asked. Well, as you described them, in both situations, people were looking for a leader, someone to help them improve their station in life. Also, in both cases, it was the death of a single person that changed the course of human history, I replied. Close. Remember, though, that the coalition leader died all on his own. In the insurrection, it cost the lives of chaos, James, 
and Meg to end that conflict. It was unsettling in some way to hear Eric refer to his old friend Adam as Chaos. He had explained his reasons well. Chaos was not Adam, Eric had said. Something changed in him. The more powers he sampled, the more nanitics he gathered around him. He changed and became Chaos. Adam is still my friend to this day, whereas Chaos is still my foe. In the present, Eric continued drawing a distinction between the two conflicts, saying, Many hundreds of thousands of more men and women worldwide were forced into laying their lives upon the altar of peace. The coalition war had its own casualty figures, to be sure, but the insurrection was far worse. I've seen those figures, I said. Many present-day scientists and historians say that the global loss of human life from the insurrection was what prompted the Earth's most recent regenerative cycle. Eric's face was grim. I've read their research, he said. I couldn't agree more. Less people means less demand on the planet. More space between large populations means more space for nature to take land back. And with the devastation that was wrought, there was plenty of cleared land to retake. Do you realize that that war should really be considered the first true world war? Eric asked, gazing up at me. It was really the first war where fighting happened all over the face of the planet. What then of the titled World Wars of the 20th century, I asked? Only in name. Most of the fighting centered around Europe, the Mediterranean, and China and Japan. No, the insurrection was truly global. He lowered his head. Battles happened everywhere. The United States, Canada, Mexico. Countries throughout Central and South America, Cuba, England, France, Germany, the Congo, South Africa, Yemen, Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, Northern China, Southeastern Russia, Japan outside the North nuclear quarantine zone, Australia, New Zealand, and, of course, Athens, Greece. And those only represent nameable areas where battles took place. We, we would ambush them. They would ambush us, so often at crossroads or border towns. And such devastation. Eric said, a deep, projected sigh escaping from him. Whole cities he said, peering at me from the tops of his eyes. Whole cities just destroyed all across the globe. Europe certainly had a vague memory of such destruction from some 100 years prior, but places like the United States, Canada, South America, not in hundreds of years, if even then, had they seen such destruction. It took a mountain of resources in total to rebuild just Europe after World War II. Imagine trying to rebuild civilization as a whole. Governments were simply becoming ineffectual and impotent in dealing with such a weakened post-war world. And Atmo, our ranks so depleted by the war, couldn't do enough. The best we could do was try to help maintain order. But what use is it to tell starving people that bread will soon arrive? What use when they'd heard the same line, the same lie, for weeks on end? 
We tried to maintain the peace, but government simply could not deliver on our placating promises. What use is an army that cannot help the people? Eric again lowered his head, slowly wringing his hands. It took a moment to compose my question. Eric, I, I need to ask. Atmo and the TDF picked the government to win out and provide a better future. Was that the right choice? Eric's eyes searched the floor, his shoulders rising and falling in time with deep, contemplative breaths. Ultimately, maybe, he lifted his gaze. It isn't over yet. Chaos's long plan, I commented, remembering what Eric had hinted at. Chaos's subtle control of the current United Terran government. Then maybe, what about just the insurrection? Did opposing it like you did really change anything? If, after all, Chaos's plan is still in motion, and all of your kind are gone but you, was the war your best course of action? It's a good question. One I've thought about an awful lot. Eric took a deep breath. It at least leveled the playing field. Had we not opposed him, all our forces would eventually have been destroyed anyway. And in the meantime, all we would have been able to do would have been an underground rebellion, one that would have been weaponless against Chaos's elite. We couldn't have kept our continued presence secret. In that way, destroying the Chaos elite at least gave humanity a chance, even if that meant abandoning her for a while. I paused long enough for Eric to compose himself. Seeing him so was comforting in some odd way. What about the war itself, Eric? As you say, we, the people of my time, don't know it at all. What about war? He said, his face uncharacteristically neutral. If it was the best choice for the TDF, if it has been the best choice at times in human history, is war by nature good or evil? War is neither, Eric replied. War does not take sides. As an institution, war educates all equally on its cost. It destroys, but also inspires creation. In its act, it encourages both itself and its opposite, peace. War does what it must to assure this outcome. War is no more good or evil than the sun, which can give life and also take it. It is humankind, and how they use war that perverts it, changes it, makes it good or evil. So what was your war? I asked gently. Was it made good or evil by Chaos's actions? It was made evil. Eric paused a moment. Evil. But by our actions, not his. We brought war by opposing him. So we were the harbingers of the horsemen. We rapped on the gates and let loose the four of them. Eric had no levity in his statement whatsoever. So, I said, pressing as I knew I must. In that respect, you agree with his official histories. I do. It is the truth, the facts of the matter. That is, after all, what you are after, he said, repeating my own words back to me. It is, I said, my throat feeling dry. What? What does that say about us, though, that your forces, with even the best of intentions, loosed destruction upon humanity? 
It says very little about humanity as it exists. What it does speak about quite well is us, my generation and my people, our motives, our approach. No more, Eric replied. But you have said how we, my version of humanity, cannot comment on war as we've never known it. If we can't aptly comment on it, and if the actions of ATMO, of the TDF, cannot speak to humanity's core, what can be said about war as part of humanity? I tried to phrase my question in such a way so as to pull Eric's analytic mind to the fore. I was becoming well aware of the patterns in our conversations that tended to set Eric on a path of analytic prose. To conquer. To dominate. To control through superior force. A term of war. Humanity itself is conflagration. Conflict personified. Without it, we lose what we are. We fight the clock. We fight traffic. Before you say it, I know. There's no traffic anymore, thanks to automation. Just let me finish my point. We even fight with ourselves on a daily basis over clothing, food choices, whether or not to approach the man or the woman we've had our eye on. Humanity is a warrior culture. That indomitable warrior spirit is what will ensure humanity's survival in the years to come. But we're at peace. Never has there been such prosperity. No citizen would dare tear down what has been built up, I commented. Not only will people dare, their plan quickly comes to fruition, Eric replied. What are you implying? He flashed me such a glare as to freeze my very soul. You can imagine all too well the horrors that await this world. Everyone can but I can see it in your mind right now. Such an ability to see the absolute worst in the future is a basal instinct of our species. We know war and famine as a snake knows how to strike. It is instinctual, genetic. By the time I tell you what lies before humanity... He shook his head, thankfully releasing me from his paralyzing gaze. When he again locked eyes with me, a wholly different persona seemed to manifest in his face, one of sorrow. The government exists in such a state of peace as has never been seen or thought of before. No armies. Uh, police and other constabulary forces are unarmed. Weapons only exist in museums as a reminder of what everyone hopes is a frightful dream of a past life. Locks and security measures are generally non-existent as they're felt unneeded. Here on Mars, maglocks are merely a carryover from the times of early settlement when airlocks were still thought necessary. Every Terran shares a collective hallucination that the species has been raised above such things as violence. Not since the time before Galileo first put his eye to the heavens did such pomposity exist. And not until the blinders are taken off, not until humanity once again embraces its darker side, will our freedom as a people be regained. No passive resistance can save humanity from its current fate. You have a pretty grim vision of the future, Eric, I murmured, adding louder. Of, of, of what darker side do you speak, Eric? Humanity's repressed penchant for war, he said flatly. But you said war itself is neither good nor evil. How can it then be humanity's darker side? 
because of what it represents and brings out in humanity. In war, moral reins on humanity are released. Your utopia exists through the repression of something basic to the human condition, of that release. Once it is again brought to the fore, that is when freedom's price will be paid, Eric stated. Chapter 32 Endgame Acceptance There was a knock on James and Melinda's door. James had been meditating alone for the past week. He didn't need Melinda's skill to tell him Meng's state of mind. Not only that, he could read the progression Meng was making on the idea. If this was him, it would be time for compromise, the third stage. James rose and opened the door. Meng was leaning against the doorframe. There's no other way about it, he said flatly. I know, James admitted. Meng looked down the hall, his stance tense. Returning his gaze to James, he said, There's got to be some way for one of us to make it. No, James replied. Something else, then. A nuke, maybe, Meng commented. He'll make his stand in a city center to prevent that. It has to be something as destructive, but localized, contained entirely. Meng replied in partial acceptance. We, we should at least be able to keep you away, keep you safe. You know better, James replied. Where in the pond do I have to stand to see what's going on behind you? Either behind me, or directly across from where I threw the stone, Meng replied. And either place, I'm in as much danger as you. The only way to call in an all-in is to match. And you know he knows. He will force our hands now. Meng said his jaw clenching it. For several seconds he stood, and simply shifted his focus from James's left eye to his right. Finally he closed his eyes. Fully accepting the situation, Meng said, What do we have to do to link just the two of us? I have it all set to go, James said. Just need to call Melinda. She'll meet us at her lab. It would be a quick procedure. They would extract some of James's and some of Meng's nanites, getting their unique carrier wave signatures, and tune the other's nanites to receive information along that band. The new coding to go along with the hard information would remain dormant until activated by both of them. We should get going. I have a briefing with Eric later today. As James walked to the comm center in his room, Meng asked, Have you two said goodbye yet? He didn't mean James and Eric. Eric's hand froze, hovering over the phone's receiver. Without looking up at Meng, he said, No. I've been putting it off. Didn't want to until I had to. Also kind of hoping I'd have the chance to do it right. Something to be remembered for the ages. Meng replied, Yeah, I wouldn't wait any longer. James closed his eyes, a tear trickling out. His mind had latched onto the meaning behind Meng's words. Among the current possibilities in his mind was the end game. 
Chaos had lost or destroyed all but one of his main bases of operation, that one still eluding the TDF's detection. His transmissions were coming faster now. He was gearing up the world's population for one final message. His last one. And Meng had seen that it was coming very soon. Opening his eyes, James picked up the receiver and punched in Melinda's, Melinda's extension. Hun, he said as he picked up, his voice cracking. He closed his eyes and cleared his throat. Meng and I are coming down. Get the program ready, please. On the other end of the line, as Melinda hung up, she fumbled her way to the edge of a counter, collapsing into a lab chair. And those were chapters 29, Ignorance Lost, 30, Endgame Discovery, 31, Precursors, and 32, Endgame Acceptance. All right. We are back on track. I promise next week I will get the podcast out on time, especially with me being ahead of schedule editing. I just need, I guess we're at 53 minutes as I speak, so I need about an hour to record this and then a little editing time to put it up, and it'll be there for you. And I do want to keep this as a weekly podcast. And so, you know, one thing you could do to help me with that, and here's my sales pitch every episode is share this with a friend. Write a review on iTunes if you like this. Connect with me on social media. All of that helps get this podcast out there. If you're really enjoying it, you could go over to Patreon. I'll get a link out on the website, and you could support me there. You could go out and buy a physical copy of my book, or get the digital version and follow along. Right now, those are the first edition and I will update those once I've completely edited the book but you could do that it's a way to help get this book out there certainly the podcast is the best edited version that there will be until the second edition comes out and that when that happens you could find out on the social media sites that I have on Facebook on Twitter so head over to narclaninc.com and connect with me there. Share the podcast with a friend if you would. I would appreciate that greatly. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in week after week. Have a great week, and we will see you next time.